0: have you as here today and a part of our church and all that you do in service and in giving and just your smiling faces, your encouragement, such a blessing to me and to each of the staff and also to one another. What a joy it is to be a part of this church. I just want to thank you for that. We are in part four of a series called The Story of Reality. Today's title is Reality is a History of Reality promises. Reality is a history of promises. And so maybe that title doesn't strike you yet. I hope that by the end of today, it will strike a chord with you and you will say, yes, that is so amazing. I'm so glad that I was here today. Now, we're going to be looking at a passage that was penned by Moses, uh, 1500 BC or so. And we're going to be looking at that section in Genesis 3 which follows up on the tragedy that we looked at last week together, the tragic events of the sin of Adam and Eve. And immediately following that tragedy, we're looking at the first gospel promise in the entire revelation of the Bible. And it's a bit cryptic, so we're going to be looking at it piece by piece today. But be very, very encouraged because right upon the heels of the swirling darkness of all the catastrophic consequences of the sin of Adam and Eve. God just lets hope fill the hearts of us looking back on it and of everybody throughout history looking back on it, but even Adam and Eve in the middle of the devastation that he's a God of love, a God of grace, a God of hope, and there's a victory that's coming that's going to be applied to the solution, the solution applied to the problem that humanity caused in God's very good world. Now, before we continue today, I want to take a little bit of time to kind of bolster our certainty about this prophecy that we're going to be looking at. Um, I want to bolster it in this way. A lot of people looking at the prophecies of the Old Testament will will be amazed at the accuracy and the detail in which prophecies and promises are fulfilled way down the road in the story of reality and told so early, right at the beginning, how could it be so? And so there's this skepticism that enters into many people's minds that think, well, the manuscripts have been tampered with and people after the prophecies were fulfilled, superimposed these prophecies in the text itself so that you have prophecies and promises from God that, that are in such detail accurate because they wrote them down after the fact and messed with the manuscripts. Well, I want to let you know that didn't happen. And here's how I know. We have, as, especially as of 75 years ago with the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, we have certainty. In the manuscripts of the Old Testament that predate Jesus, we have incredible certainty that they were preserved and protected and these prophecies were there before the arrival of Jesus. The simplest... uh, uh, and strongest piece for me to just hang on to is that the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures were in place several hundred years before Jesus' arrival. So that piece alone will assure us that these prophetic statements of the Old Testament, and we're gonna start on a track where we're looking at a number of them, but we're looking at the first. These prophetic statements were there in the Old Testament scriptures, long before the fulfillment. Okay? Just hang on to that. It's important. Now, I want to just put a text uh, on the screen if I have it. Uh, Maybe it isn't there. Never mind. Who else but God can tell with perfect accuracy, far in advance, what is going to happen in the distant future? Think about that. History is just rolling forward, but God who stands apart from history, but enters into history, is able from the beginning to tell us what the future of that history will be. Almost like an author outside of the book can tell you the ending before it comes. Why? Because he's writing it. Who else but God can do that in reality, in our story of reality? And so if you're kind of, your mind's kind of having a hard time hanging on to that, we have a God who stands outside of time, outside of the universe, who created the start of time, the start of the universe, the start of everything. And he is the self-existing one. And he starts this story, and at the outset of the story, he's able to tell where the end of the story will go. And he has this plan, and he reveals it in the middle of the story as it's unveiling before us, even in the first chapter of the story, at the very, very beginning, he's telling us where it's going, and that just gives us assurance as we go, and it gives people of history the assurance as we go that God has truly revealed himself. Let's just think this through for a little bit. So not only does God show up in history, in Revelation with specific people like Moses, like Abraham, like Adam and Eve, he shows up in history with them, he then tells them stuff, and then there's accurate recording of these revelations that are then carried forward for the benefit of those of us who didn't get to see him in in reality revealing before these people, that as the history rolls on and these promises are actually coming through with accuracy and detail, we get this sense that this is real. This is true. And so I want to kind of set up an object lesson. How many of you have ever played Etch-a-Sketch before? It's like the quintessential American toy, invented 1960, and Some of you were way into video games and you love video games. I grew up with this video game, okay? It looks like a TV, it does not act like a TV, all right? You have complete control or If you're not very good, no control over how to move these knobs and draw all over this thing. Uh, I just want to start with a little teeny video of, yes, these are my hands, and no, I'm not quite moving this fast. We just want to speed it up, of the joy of Etch-a-Sketch on the screen for you. Here we go. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Then God said, let there be light. And God said, let us make mankind in our image. And God saw all that he created, and it was very good. Okay, my name is Jim Hammond and I played too much at a sketch <laughs> Now, if you keep staring, you're going to find my typo, which I decided I'm not going to do that again, and uh, we'll just keep going here. Now, I want to set this object lesson up a little bit because in week one, uh, we quoted Carl Sagan at the outset of his uh, PBS documentary cosmos he said the cosmos is all that there is or ever was or ever will be now what he's saying there is he's a guy whose worldview is that our universe is a closed box and there isn't anybody outside of our universe turning the knobs to take uh, to take control of what's going on inside of our universe that his view is it's a closed box and all of us are in, inside the closed box of the universe and the universe only consists of things that you can study and prove by empirical senses and experimentation. That's the only reality. There's not such a thing as a God on the outside manipulating what takes place on the, uh, inside our world. Okay. Now, I know better because I play Etch-A-Sketch. Okay? <laughs> I know how it works. So, I want us all to imagine that we are inside the universe and there is a God. And here's what I want us to imagine. Now, I want us to imagine that as we look up into the sky, if we're in an etch a sketch world, it's opaque and it's gray. Okay? Are you getting my point here? We're inside here, we're looking at the sky, it's gray. It might help to know a little something about Etch-a-Sketch. etch sketch has got aluminum powder on the inside. If you shake it like this, it sticks to the sky or the glass of, of this universe, right? And then if you move the left knob, the left knob goes horizontal, the right knob goes up and down. And you can move them together to go diagonally or even create a circle, which is, you know, advanced levels here, okay? <laughs> of the Etch-A-Sketch world. But if we're inside of the Etch-A-Sketch world, notice what takes place. As we're looking up at the gray sky, we're seeing, now, if we were looking at what we just saw in that video form, we're seeing writing in the sky from somebody on the outside that God literally brought words of revelation to our world and oversaw that these words were accurately reflecting when he entered into our world and revealed himself in many different ways, okay? Now here's a little something else about Etch-a-Sketch. If you were like me, you would to learn how it worked. So you worked and worked and worked to clear off the sky to see inside from the outside. And as you look inside, you realize there's this stylus inside there attached by cables or strings, I couldn't quite tell by looking through the window, that are manipulated by the knobs. And so you can move this stylus. If you keep moving it, moving it, moving it, you can clear off whole section, you can see it, it's so cool. But just imagine if you're in the inside And God gives you revelation after revelation after revelation. Let's just think about this. All the words of all the prophecies and all the revelations and all the truths in the Bible written on the sky, pretty soon the whole glass is cleared and we're looking through the glass and guess what we see? God manipulating the knobs. There is a God. And how do we know? Through the carefully revealed realities and carefully protected words over the history that these realities reveal a a reality that we wouldn't otherwise know. So as I read this text that is between the binding, the end of the Bible and the beginning of the Bible, as I read this text at the beginning, there was 1500 BC and it's already telling about Jesus, In the middle of the story, and as I keep reading, there's promises even with Jesus about the end of the story that match the promises at the beginning of the story. It gives me this confidence that's just growing and growing and growing because there's got to be somebody outside manipulating that kind of knob in these revelations. If that resonates with you, welcome to my world. I love Etch-A-Sketch, and uh, I hope that speaks to you just a little bit. Who but God could do this? That's what today is all about. Even as we continue the darkest part of the story, immediately after Adam and Eve failed, we pick up from where we left off last week, just listen or if you want to grab a Bible, it's not going to be on the screen, uh, this section. We're going to be in Genesis 3, 6 through 15. God, as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Now, pause there. They'd never felt the need to hide from God before. Now they're covering themselves. Now they're hiding from God. But the Lord God called out to the man, "'Where are you?' Pause. God knows everything.' This question is not for God's benefit. Where are you? It's for Adam and Eve's benefit. Why are you hiding? What's happened? Where are you? Good question. He answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. And he said, who told you that you were naked? As if God doesn't know, he already knows. This question is not for him. Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? Question already, answer known. Whose benefit is this question for? This is for Adam to respond. It's the last ditch effort of God to have Adam respond in confession. That's not what happens. The man said, the woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me, and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and all wild animals. You will crawl on your belly, and you will eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So here we see God's very good world becoming very dark fast, and then he finishes with a hope-filled statement. So let's talk about the dark world, self-consciousness, guilt and shame, cover-up, fear, Hiding, refusing to confess, and instead making excuses and blaming. Adam is the worst. He's not only blaming Eve, he blames God for making Eve and giving Eve to him. (laughs) It's your fault, God. You did it. And it's remarkable to me that after such accusation, after such treasonous behavior, moving from trust to treason in one conversation with a snake, After that treasonous behavior, there's treasonous words. It's your fault, God. And then God responds this way. Point number one. A promised battle predicts the serpent's defeat. A promised battle predicts the serpent's defeat. Genesis 3.15 again. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. Okay, question for you. How many of you do not like snakes? Okay, maybe more than half. This is not about that. There's enmity between the offspring of the woman and all snakes. This is not about that, because we're talking about a being who impersonated a snake, and we're going to discover that. As we go, but you should have got a clue early on. Snakes don't talk, and snakes don't totally go against God's word. Snakes don't, don't try to lead people apart from God exactly 180 degrees in the opposite direction. And so we've got something going on here. Should have been clued even by the text itself, but we're going to see more clues as we go. There is a promised battle that predicts the serpent's defeat. Point number two. A promised birth identifies the seed. A promised birth identifies the seed. Now, the promise is very cryptic, and even this point sounds really cryptic, and all of history, they have to wait to see how this promise will be revealing the truth about what's taking place. We don't have to wait that long because that history has taken place. We just have to wait at least through point number two. Hopefully, we'll get it before we get to point number three, okay? Okay? So, here it is again, Genesis 3.15. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her. So we're talking about hope. In the day that you eat it, you shall surely die. And they did. They experienced spiritual death and are separated from God. They're cast out of the garden. Spiritually, they're dead. They're... And from that point forward... <laughs> Everybody is spiritually dead. They don't, we don't see God. We don't hear from God. We don't talk to God except for in these in, in, intricate ways with a prophet so on and so forth when the spirit comes on them until later in the story when our dead spirits could be regenerated. We did the regen series not too long ago by because of what Jesus has done. Made alive again so that we can have a union with God through Jesus Christ. That's later in the story. But The good news is the woman is going to have offspring. The weird news is that the word for offspring in the Hebrew is normally translated seed. And that word normally translated seed in the Hebrew can be taken plural or singular depending on the context. So unlike the word seed, because we have seed and seeds, the word in Hebrew is more like the word sheep. Sheep and sheep. And the context determines whether you're talking about a flock of sheep, plural, or a single sheep, singular, okay? So that's why offspring is a good word translation here because we don't say offsprings. All the collective offspring of a woman would be her offspring. Or one particular offspring would be her offspring. And here's what's weird about this little sentence here is that in line one we have hostility, a battle between the children of the serpent offspring of the serpent and the children of the woman. So we have this, in line one, it seems like this plural battle. Okay? And then in line two, we have a singular he, her offspring, her seed. He will crush your head and a singular crushing to the singular serpent. No longer offspring versus offspring, but a he versus him. And this is, Coming right in the middle of the consequences, the Lord is speaking directly to the serpent. Following me? Okay. All of that's helpful background. Now I'm going to ask a couple of questions. The first one, I'm not going to answer yet. Who's that particular seed who will deliver that crushing blow even though his heel is bruised in the meantime? No answers, please, yet. Because I want to ask another question before this one and we'll get to that first one later. The other question is, who is the offspring of the serpent? Who are the children of the devil? Oops, the serpent. <laughs> Jesus answered that question in John 8:44 when he was in the battle with Religious elite of his day, a sect of Judaism called Pharisees, and in the middle of this battle, when they're plotting to kill him, Jesus says this, John 8, You belong to your father, the devil, and you want to carry out your father's desires. When he lies, he speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. Now, for this interpretation to work for Jesus, you need to understand his worldview. The serpent was not a snake. The serpent was an impersonation of a fallen angel. In my opinion, he's falling right in this same time frame because he was sent to be a guardian cherub, but instead of guarding these skin bags, he says, skin bags? I'm more glorious than they. That's not a direct quote of any scripture, by the way. Um <laughs> But in, in uh, Ezekiel, you, you get this concept where then, instead of being a guardian, he becomes the tempter, okay? Now, according to Jesus' worldview, the serpent was no mere snake, he's the devil, and the apostles got this from Jesus, the apostles are very clear, here's another example from the apostle John, late at the end of the story, the last re- uh, book of the Bible, Revelation, we read this. In Revelation 12, 9, the great dragon was hurled down, that ancient serpent called the devil, or Satan, who leads the whole world astray. He was hurled to the earth and his angels with him. So there's a plural battle and a singular battle. All of those children of Eve who are followers of God are gonna go through a battle and continue to go through a battle with those who are opposed to Jesus and everything of God, including the people who are followers of Jesus, and we'll see an epic battle at the end that Jesus even talks about and John writes about. Uh, just hold that thought. Now, beyond that, here's another really cool thing and a weird thing about the concept of the seed of a woman. Jews don't talk that way. Jews always talk about the offspring of a man or the seed of a man, okay? Okay? The seed of the man is implanted in the woman and their offspring is this. That's how Jews talk. But early in the story, God puts a promise about a seed of a woman and here we have read that it's a particular he. There's a particular he that's gonna be the seed of the woman that is going to crush the serpent's head and in the middle of that crushing, he will have his heel bruised and that is going to set up the victory into motion, okay? Now, that being said, Isaiah says there's a sign that you can identify who this particular Christ will be, who this Emmanuel will be. A virgin will give birth. A virgin shall conceive. So there's gonna be a seed of a woman without a biological dad because God himself will Make this happen so that the second Adam will reverse the curse of the first Adam. There's a lot of theology being thrown at you right now. So uh, with this theology, you're getting a view of how this story unfolds and what God had planned from the outset to reveal the solution to the problem that humanity itself created. Okay? Now, we're ready for point number three. A promised price is paid by sacrifice. A promised price is paid by sacrifice. This is surprising love that God is demonstrating. He's just been slapped in the face with treason from those children he loved so well and provided for so well. And they go and follow a liar in one conversation showing extreme disloyalty And not trusting what God said, instead trusting what the snake says. And what does God do? He is going to demonstrate his grace. Now, just grace is what? Grace is giving people or anyone what they do not deserve. We need to see that here. God is giving us a promise. They don't deserve this promise. God is giving the promise that will be fulfilled. We don't deserve this promise that will be fulfilled. But it's God's plan because of his love and because he sees in us still, even though the image of God is completely mudded over with the darkness of our sin, that we don't reflect God's glory well, that God has a plan to clean us all off and to make it work for us. Where Adam and Eve try a cover-up for their guilt God instead provides a covering by sacrifice, okay? Now, before we even talk about how this takes place through the he that crushes the serpent's head, we also have the first cryptic prototype of this covering that comes by sacrifice in verse 21 of Genesis 3. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Now, as you recall from what I just read earlier, Adam and Eve all of a sudden felt shame, self-consciousness. They'd never felt that before. They felt naked before God, exposed. Why? They're guilty. They feel guilt and shame, and they've never felt that before. And with that, they immediately feel fear. They never felt that before either. And so they're busy trying to hide and cover up, and they're covering themselves up with fig leaves. Good luck with that. Doesn't really brave them as much as you want. You're going to fall apart. They're not really going to cover you so well. God graciously provides a better covering in Genesis 3.21. The Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. Let's think about this for a moment. Fig leaves won't do. I'm going to give you something better. And guess what? The first deaths have to take place in order for me to do this. And God allows animals to be sacrificed to provide skin garments to cover up their own shame. And this is God's love and covering instead of the cover-up practices that we have. Now Let me just say, I totally get cover-up. I'm busy trying to hide my shame. I'm busy trying to hide the dark side of myself. I'm busy trying to hide who I really am. Frequently, I'm way into, much to my own shame, image management, so you only see the best side of me. And I work at trying to help you see that I struggle just like you. I frequently tell you how much I struggle so that you can relate. We are in need of mercy and grace. You cannot image manage your way into acceptance before God. It cannot work nor does it work in relationships with one another. We just push each other off with our lies as we cover up instead of confess and grow with truth from the inside with God's gracious help. But God knows this about us and he covered us by sacrifice, which is pointing forward. It's like forgiveness on credit that will finally be paid off in Jesus. Those of us who have the fortune to live after Jesus' sacrifice, we point our faith back to what has already been paid and accept the cost and the price paid by Jesus so that we can put on the righteousness of Jesus and let our filthy rags be buried with him in the tomb. Wow, I'm starting to preach and I wasn't planning to go all there. Uh, This is grace. Point number four. A promised victory is coming. Jesus delivered this crushing blow through his death, burial, and resurrection. His resurrection power is released to us through his spirit now residing in us. We now have greater authority residing in us than Satan himself if we have accepted the payment of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross. Because in his resurrection, he releases the same power that raised him from the dead to be in us. His resurrection life in us is the spirit of God. And once the spirit of God enters into our life, because we've accepted the terms of the covenant, we have the authority of Christ in us. And the same heel that delivered the crushing blow will complete that crushing blow, not only because of the cross, but through the body of Christ now united with Jesus, we will put our heels on his head. And this is what Romans tells us, and Paul says in Romans 16, 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Which is a surprise ending to this whole thing. Who is the foot that will crush his head? It is the foot of Jesus. While the Satan thought he was delivering a death blow with this bite to his heel, Jesus was killed and crucified. But surprise, surprise, he conquered death, he conquered sin and released resurrection to all of us so that all of us have a victory over Satan and he is humiliated so he will keep coming at you to make you think he is stronger than you. But the Apostle John says, greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. And he will come to a judgment place in the end, and we become victors, but we have a battle ahead of us. That's the whole story told already at Genesis three fifteen. Would you... With that, I think I can just say, are you ready to trade in your guilt and your shame and your cover-up? All of those efforts for God's covering in the righteousness of Jesus, that's his offer. That's his offer from the beginning. That's his offer right up to Jesus. That is his offer still. And that offer is offered to the glory of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. It's called grace, amazing grace. Father God, we are naked before you. We have no righteousness of our own that we can offer. We are just as treasonous in our thoughts and treasonous in our decisions frequently. We're so grateful that you paid the price of sacrifice, even the death of your son. To make a way for us where there was no way. To give us a righteousness that is not our own. I pray that we can hang on to this with great hope and great confidence. A confidence built on all of these lines of revelation to where we see the glory of a loving God. Who loves us that much. We love you. We trust you. We offer ourselves to you. Help us to grow in this truth. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. We have a prayer team to the left of the stage that would be happy to pray for you about anything. God bless you. See you next week as we're gonna look at the history of prototypes coming up uh, next week. Thanks, bye.